All right, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Glad to see you all in here today. And thanks for sending all your questions. Like I told Stephen last week, I really want to make sure you guys throw me a nice softball so that I could get a nice, easy question. Stephen's like, no problem. I'll give you a, I'll give you a really easy one. What is the federal vision? <sighs> all right. Now, <laughs> let me just give you a little disclaimer about what I'm going to tell you today. Uh, this is a very hard question to answer. First, because anyone who says that they are federal vision, they also don't really know what federal vision is. Okay? So nobody really knows what federal vision is. It's, it's a very mysterious. That's the one thing that you'll find out. It's a very mysterious kind of thing. Um, the other thing about it is that it is in constant flux. I'll tell you a little bit about the history so we'll understand more about why this question's asked and everything. But it, was, it started about, well, in about 2002 is when it kind of got this formal thing going. And since then, there's just been a big, long discussion about exactly what it means. So it's constantly changing. So the analogy that we like to use is it's like trying to nail jello to the wall, right? You're like trying to figure out what it is all the time, but it's pretty gooey. So, we're really going to need a little, but it is very important for us to address, so I'm glad to address it today. Uh, so let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, to ask him to help us. Our Father, we thank you very much that in your word you have given us all that we need for life and godliness, including um, what we need to know that we might serve you, uh, that we might um, love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and all the things that you require of us. We thank you that in your, the work of your spirit, you give us what we need so that we can accomplish these things and that you're constantly changing us and, and transforming us even into the image of your own son. And we pray, Lord, for uh, wisdom today in how we think about what you have taught us and what this means for us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So what is the federal vision? So why does this matter to us? You might have a question. I'm assuming that this question came out of the fact that every once in a while from the pulpit, especially Pastor Bailey, but people from the pulpit will say something about federal vision. And it's always a little nebulous, right? Because exactly what is this thing? What does it mean? And or you remember when we were looking at uh, going into uh, Presbytery, we looked at going into the CREC denomination, and there are a lot of churches within that group that are part of, that have this federal vision bent to them. So that's probably where this question is coming out of. So why does it matter to us? Well, as you'll see in a little bit, this is exactly the kind of theology, and, and this is an error, okay, so I'm going to just start off saying that. This is a pretty serious error, but it's exactly the kind of error that we are prone to. So that's why it's important to us. So if we're going to understand something about this, you, you're not, we can't just start with the theology because it's just, they, they aren't that clear about what they actually mean. So instead, what you have to do is go back a little bit. We're going to look at the history because what, you'll understand a lot better what federal vision is if you try to get down to the motivations, right? Try to get down to why this was presented in the first place and why, why it matters for us. So we're going to look at the history, then we'll look at the theology of this movement, and then we'll look at practice and implications for us and, and what this means for us. So first of all, the history. Where does this 
federal vision thing come from? It comes from a conference that was held back in 2002 called the Federal Vision Conference. And uh, it was held at Auburn Avenue Presbyterian Church, which is a PCA church, Presbyterian Church in America. And so um, although there are a lot of issues with the PCA, and you might be aware of them now, we as a church are still, we have a lot of similarities to PCA church. And so this is something that kind of came out from the same stream as, as where we are. But this was held at a PCA church. And the, this conference was called this uh, when you hear federal vision, you want to think federal meaning covenantal. So this is about covenant. So we're going to talk a lot about covenants today. And the federal vision was a covenantal perspective. The idea here in this uh, conference was that there were four speakers. And these speakers, you, you've probably heard of Doug Wilson. Doug Wilson was one of those four speakers. The other four aren't as um, well known, at least here maybe so. But Doug Wilson, you've heard of him. And the four of, of them presented this covenantal perspective. Um, now, this has morphed over the years to the point where now uh, Doug Wilson says that he is not part of Federal Vision. He's just said, don't call me Federal Vision. Other people, though, have kind of picked up the the, the baton here, Peter Lightheart, James Jordan, Rich Lusk. So you'll hear certain names associated with Federal Vision, and they're, uh, they're the ones who are going to be kind of the, the forefront today if you ever read anything maybe on the internet, for instance. So historically, this is what happened. Now, you have to understand a little bit about their motives, and it goes um, something like this. In a lot of ways, it was meant to address current problems, so current problems within the church. And there are a lot of very real problems, and one of the things about federal vision is that um, agree or disagree, from our perspective, it was asking the right questions, right? It's, it's trying to address what really is important, and that's why it's important for us to look at it. Like, for instance, Broadly across the evangelical church, there's a pretty low view of the church. Um, and it's, you know, it's related to individualism that goes along with a believer. You know, it's kind of me and Jesus. And then I go to church if that's helpful to, to me, or I can go pray out in the woods if that's helpful to me. Or, you know, so there's, there's a very low view of the church. There's a very low view of the means of grace. So, you know, preaching is is, can be a helpful thought for the day, or, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a good thing to get baptized, but when, really when it comes down to it, it's just a, 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 a symbolic thing, and it doesn't really matter that much. You know, th that's a broad, broad view of a lot of the evangelical church. Then you also have a lot of subjectivism. So su subjectivism kind of comes out in different ways. So how do I know I'm a Christian? Well, you know, obviously I I'm, I know I'm a Christian because God loves everybody, right? So I'm, I'm a Christian. And this, this is, I, I wanted to talk about this today particularly because it ties into what we talked about last week, right, with Stephen. He was t uh, talking about assurance of salvation. And so this subjectivism, how do I have any assurance? Is it really based on me? Uh, being very subjective, we think it's about me particularly, as opposed to something objective, something outside of myself. And so it's easy to, to, to see across the broad scope 
that there is a lot of subjectivism of it's just my relationship, my understanding of Jesus. Um, then you have other qu- problems like antinomianism. So that's just a fancy word for um, really God's law doesn't matter anymore. You know, we're saved, but we're going to really focus on grace. It used to be all about law, but now it's all about grace. And so the idea that it doesn't really matter what you do anymore because God's grace in Christ, and so I'm free, and that's, that's a prevailing notion. And the relationship of church and state. So things like, you know, the church is isolated from the state, and so we shouldn't have any laws. We shouldn't try to um, in any way in, impact the world around us concerning important things like abortion or homosexuality or uh, anything like that, right? Because the church, there are certain people in the reformed group that kind of think, well, we should just pull away from that because that's, you know, that's them out there and we don't have any impact. We don't have any tie to secular society. They just do whatever they want. Um, though, these are all kind of prevailing errors. And this was in many ways meant to address kind of those prevailing errors. Uh, and so you see that, that these are things that we agree are problems. We agree that these are problems. And so they present a, uh, a solution to these problems. So that's why it's important for us to understand it because it, it is potentially a, a, a tempting kind of solution because they present something that's kind of holistic and helps to address all these issues. Um, but it is an error. So that's on the surface of it. But what you really have to understand is what this is really about, what, what this conference originally was about, and what it really is about today is the same question that also is important to us. The real question is, what about our children? Right? Any, any group that um, takes very seriously, any church that takes seriously the fact that God desires a godly seed, that he wants us to have children and to, um, and to see his kingdom grow in that way, any group like that is going to be asking important questions like, well, what about our children? How does God work in our children? Um, as, as we look at, um, at, at you, right? I mean, we came into the church. This is super important for you as high school students. Uh, those who are older, so churches go through this. There is a generational thing that happens where a church, especially like ours, which was founded about 20-ish years ago, are, is founded by a group of people who come together of their own volition. That means they, they, uh, they're adults, they come together, they, they make decision that this is, an, this is what I believe, and so that's the foundation of that church. But then what happens is they have children. And guess what? You didn't choose to be here, right? You came along. And now you're here. And so now, are you going to choose? What are you going to choose? Because that's the age you're coming to. What are you going to choose? Are you going to choose to reject what you've been taught? Or are you going to choose to believe what you've been taught? And that's a hugely important issue. You know, your parents really care a lot because they want you to know the same Jesus Christ that we know, right? And that's super, super important. But there's... But how, how does that happen? You know, what do we do? What, does that happen automatically? Is there something we have to do about that? How, how do we deal with this as a second generation church? And this has been addressed over and over in history. This is not the first time that this has ever happened. There have been lots of different kinds of ways that this has happened. So how did they address this? 
Well, in order to understand this, the first thing you have to understand is how they think about the Bible, okay? And um, there are two basic interpretation or ways that we can look at the Bible or understand the Bible. One of them is called systematic theology. And systematic theology takes the Bible as the complete work of God, right? It is a complete work of God. And so what we can do is using God's word, we can address any issue by looking at what God has said in his word. And that's a very important part of, uh, of how we understand God. The other type, broad field of theology is called biblical theology. And biblical theology is also very important because God didn't hand us, you know, the Bible is not a systematic theology textbook. It's not, he didn't order everything according to the order of, hey, let's turn to the chapter that's all about adoption. Let's turn to the chapter that's all about, it's not ordered that way. It's ordered because God is a real God. He's a personal God who deals with us as people. And the way that we interact with him is through what he has, how he has chosen to show himself to us because we didn't know him. We, in fact, we hated him. So he had to do something. He had to interact with us in such a way. And that's, he did that through something called covenant. Uh, he made a covenant with us. So uh, one of the problems, you, know, you can't get by without understanding the Bible both of those ways. One of the problems with federal vision is that they have really just rejected systematic theology. And so instead, they really like to look at the Bible like it's God's story narrative of how he's working in the world. And so what that means is that they get pretty loose with a lot of interpretation and that allows them to interpret things in really weird ways. There is a really, really heavy emphasis on the continuity of the Old and New Testament. Now, the way that we understand, the way that Reformed or the way that our church understands God's work is called covenantal theology. What we believe and what is taught in our Westminster standards is that God makes covenant. First of all, that the Father and the Son, in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, made an eternal covenant where he chose a people for himself. And that he chose that Jesus Christ would come to to earth on our behalf, that he would die in our place, and that that by his effective work, he would call a people to himself. So that's called the eternal decree of God. Um, it's an eternal covenant. But then God worked in history through covenant as well. He made a covenant with Adam. And the covenant he made with Adam was a co- called, we often call it the covenant of works. And that covenant was that, it, that um, if you obey me, you will have life. Right, life, uh, you need to, you obey what I say and by that you will have life and that you will continue in my favor. God, it's not to say that it was not gracious because that covenant was gracious, right? It was completely God's choice to bless Adam. He blessed him, he chose that he was gonna bless him and he said, hey, all this grace that I've given you, continue to walk in it and I will give you life, right? So it is a gracious covenant covenant. It's not like we were trying to earn God's favor, like somehow he was like, well, if you do good, then I'll bless you, right? It wasn't like that. But what happened, that covenant was to Adam and to who else? Everyone that was descended of him. So guess what? That was a covenant to you and you and you and you and you. That was a covenant to every single one of us. 
because it was a covenant to our father, Adam. And when Adam fell, we all fell. And by the effect of that, we all hate God. And we all want our own way. We want to be God. So did God leave us to just to die in our sin? No. He made a covenant with us called, that we often call the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace is that now uh, what he requires of us is faith in Christ. Now he gives us that faith too. He doesn't require us to generate it on our own because he knows that we hate him. So how can someone who hate him just love him? We have to have a change of heart. So God gives us that. But he requires us in faith to turn to Christ for our salvation just based on nothing that we have ever done. We need Christ's righteousness. And Christ fulfilled that. He fulfilled that in his obedience to the law. He fulfilled that in his, even his death. So he fulfilled that all that the law said because the law says, if you live, if you obey, you will live. And if you sin, you will die. And so Christ fulfilled both of those things, right? He lived a perfect life in our place and he died the death that was due to us. And so in, that, in what he did there, he accomplished for us everything that's necessary. We need to be righteous before God. Where does our righteousness come from? From Jesus. He gives it. it we say fancy words like that's imputed to us, right? He counted that toward us. And that's how we have acceptance before God because we've, we, it, God sees us in Christ's righteousness. Okay, so that's covenantal theology. We believe all that, okay? Now, what the federal vision does is to place a really, really heavy emphasis, in fact, too much of an emphasis on the continuity of how God gives that grace. What, so even though there's one covenant of grace for all his people for all time, he did dispense it in different ways. In the Old Testament, through the law, through the temple, through the priests, the reason he dispensed it that way was because they were still waiting for the Messiah to come. So they didn't have the Messiah that they could see. So he dispensed through that grace, he gave them the law, he gave them all these benefits so that they would have faith in Christ to come. Now we live on the other side. So we live in the same grace, exactly the same grace as Israel, fundamentally, but the difference is we live on this side of it historically. So now we know Jesus because we saw him. And so we don't look forward to a Messiah. We look back to a Messiah. And so therefore what happens is we still, just like them, live by faith. That's the only way to live. Just like Abraham, he was justified by faith. We're justified by faith. But we are different, right? There are differences. And that's why God called it. That's why Jesus called it the new covenant. He actually called it the new covenant. So there is something different. The problem is with federal vision, they really really, really blend the Old and New Testament together really, really heavy. Okay, so here's what, they, here's what they do. Their theology is based on this thing called covenant objectivity. Okay, so their solution to this whole problem is that they, they look at um, the covenant in a very, very particular way. Like we, believe, we believe that God has made covenant with us and with our children, right? We do believe that because that's what the Bible says. Um, now, what they believe when they talk about covenant objectivity is they, <laughs> let me see how I can explain this. All right, so what they, that what they say is that there is a decree of election, 
just like, like what we believe. They say that God, in time past, decreed that he, that, that he would save some, that he would save some people, that he would call those people to be Christ's own. They believe that, but they also believe in a covenantal election. So what they, what they mean by that is that um, they objectify the covenant so that they say that everyone who is baptized into the name receives all the benefits of that covenant at the moment that they're baptized. It might be good to look at a, a quote. This is by Rich Lusk. Um, who was the pastor there at that Auburn Avenue church at that time and still continues today. So he says, God has decreed from the foundation of the world all that comes to pass, including who would be saved and lost for all eternity. So far, so good. But now it turns. Included in his decree, however, is that some persons not destined for final salvation would be drawn to Christ and to his people for a time. These people for a season enjoy real blessings purchased for them by Christ's cross and applied to them by the Holy Spirit through word and sacrament. They may be said to be reconciled to God, adopted, granted new life, so regeneration, for instance, but in the end, they fail to persevere and because they fall away, they go to hell. Okay, so what they, what they do is to say that those who are baptized, if you've received the mark of the covenant, the seal, the sign and seal of the covenant, baptism, that you are rightly said to be regenerated so that you have a new heart, right? And that you uh, are uh, born again. All of, the, all of the benefits that we would say f- of, a, of a true believer are applied to them. So this, of course, is the solution to our children, Right? Because if your children are baptized, then what that means is that they are Christians in every sense of the word that we are. Now, of course, they could reject it. We're not, they're not saying that they can't reject it, so you could reject it. But as long as you're baptized, you are a Christian in every sense of the word. From the, from the moment as an infant you're baptized, you are a Christian in every, every single sense of the word that, um, that, a, uh, that anyone else is right? And that's the objectivity. It's very objective. God made a covenant. He gave a seal. If he gives a seal, then it's done, right? That's the objectivity. Now, when we, when we look at the way that we understand this, though, is a little different. That we say that there is a visible and invisible church, okay? So, the mark of baptism is very important. There is no doubt that in baptism, God promises blessing. And one of those blessings right from the very beginning is a common grace. So if as an infant you are baptized, you are a member of the church. Now this is where Baptists, so this is why it gets even worse because now I have to teach it two different ways because right? we, have, we have Baptists and we have Pado-Baptists in this congregation. So if you are a Pado-Baptist, what you believe is that when your infants are baptized, they are members of the church and they receive common grace from that because what they receive is uh, or a, 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 really, a really great grace of being in the church and being taught in the church and all the benefits that come from being in the church. Um, however, 
that is the visible church. They, that they, as a baptized member, you are part of the visible church. You belong to the church in every external way. That does not mean that you are regenerate, though, right? You are not, we do not believe that you are regenerate at the time of baptism. Regeneration is completely the work of God. It has nothing, we can't affect it by things we do, right? And in fact, that's what the mark of baptism is. The mark of baptism is that we believe that God in his providence, and we have faith as parents that God has promised that he will work in our children because he works through us, uh, he works in us and to our children. These promises are for both of us. But that doesn't mean that they're regenerate at this point. So just if you were baptized as an infant, you're not regenerate. As, as a mark, because of the um, baptism itself, right? Baptism itself doesn't confer union with Christ. That's one of the things that Federal Vision teaches fundamentally is that when you're baptized, you have full union with Christ, meaning that you are a partaker of all of his benefits. Um, that, is, that is not what traditional Reformed theology teaches. And so what, that, what this means, you know, there are a number of bad things that come from this. Um, one thing, th- from a pastoral point of view and, and from a theological point of view, th- there are a number of uh, things that are uh, a problem. Um, one of the things, for instance, kind of comes out in their practice. So if we look at the practice, um, what naturally falls out of that theology is that, well, if you are a in union with Christ in every single way that any believer is by the objective nature of the fact you've been baptized, then you should take communion, right? You should take communion because that is given to everyone who is in union with Christ. And so you shouldn't deny it. So this is called pedo communion And there are different practices among different people depending on their understanding of it. But it's basically when you're a young child, maybe two, maybe even younger, um, you'll begin to take communion um, because it doesn't require any t- type of assent or um, any type of um, the ability to uh, look at yourself, to, invest, to uh, look at your own heart before taking communion. They just say it's an objective part of the covenant and therefore you should partake. They also, in their practice, uh, practice covenantal or covenant renewal worship which is basically what covenant renewal worship is, is they say, well, again, because the Old Testament and New Testament are really just almost exactly the same as each other, there's just very, very small differences, we should today model our worship after what they did in the Old Testament. Now, of course, there are some differences, but really we should use the Old Testament, we should use the sacrificial system. Now, knowing that Christ has died, so we don't have to actually sacrifice animals, but we're going to model our whole way of worship around this. And so it becomes a very high type of worship where the, the emphasis in, in this is that the pastor, the, the most important thing that the pastor does or the minister does is to stand as a representative of God before the people. Now, they don't go as far as to say that they're a priest, but really they do, right? Because what they're saying is that the most important thing is that that, that pastor represents um, God to you and you represent, the, and you're represented to God through the pastor and this is the way of God's working. Um, 
so those are some things that come out in practice because it's all kind of one big ball of wax there. Uh, did I make that like as totally clear as mud to everybody? Uh, yeah, Ben. I have not been to. Uh, yeah, well, so some of the things, uh, so they would, for instance, they're very, so they're, they're very highly liturgical. Well, some of the things that would be strange to us would be they would always, their ministers would always wear um, a white gown. And they often wear, just in daily life, they'd wear a collar. So they were, they'd look very, very Anglican, okay? So what you'd imagine from an Anglican church. And the reason for that, again, is because of this um, representation before the people. They, they, don't, they don't do uh, any kind of announcements during the service because that would have been, you know, that's not how they would do it in the temple, right? So they'd often gather out and have announcements first and do things like that. But then once they come in um, to, to a service... It's going to be um, uh, very ordered, very highly ordered. They're going to tend to have uh, a lot of singing that you would think of as very unusual um, because there are, that's really more of a preference thing when it comes down to it though, but are there other things that you're thinking of? Yeah, Ben. Right, right. Now that, and that goes into, again, the history of this. One of their motives was really how do we deal with, you know, strong propon- proponents of, like Doug Wilson, very strong proponent of Christian and classical education and, and having our children in the service with us and um, that those things are, are not, not preferred. Those things are essential. Yes. And I have seen them take, they use wine. I've seen mm-hmm. them take the bread, dip it in the wine, and rub it on, you know, a month old baby. Ah, okay, yeah. So, yeah, so, pedo, so communion is very, very important. Pedo communion is very, very important to the point where uh, they'll even, you know, dip the bread, if you didn't hear it, dip the bread in the wine and then rub it on the infant, just, you know, so that it's like it, near their mouth. Um, yeah, so those are the types of things that are part of federal vision. Um, so, and here are the dangers for us. So why does this matter to us? Well, one of the reasons is because of the, the idea of the swinging pendulum. There are all, in, many theo- in almost every aspect of theology, there are two opposite errors, two ditches you can fall into. And what happens is that people who escape from one ditch, right, they're like teetering on the edge of this ditch, they start moving into the middle and they never quite stop and they go all the way over and fall in the other ditch, right? And that's the swinging pendulum approach. And so what you'll see is that a lot of people in this movement, it's not an accident that a lot of them came out of sort of an antinomian Baptist background or or Arminian Baptist background, meaning that they at one point really saw Baptism and the Lord's Supper is kind of like nice little ceremonies you do. They're memorials, but they don't really have any real grace attached to them. They're just, and, and so now they're like, or, and a very low view of church and things like that. And now they continue to swing over. And that's something that can be an issue f- for us, whether it's this particularly, or the children of Reformed people often become Anglican or become um, in this theology, fundamentally, I mean, this theology is Lutheran, all right? This is not a new theology. This is a Lutheran theology. And um, 
whether it's dressed up kind of in a reformed words or not, it's Lutheran. So becoming Lutheran or becoming uh, Anglican or even Roman Catholic because we're trying to escape so far away from being as Baptist. So that's really common. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Systematic theology does have its own set of dangers, right? But I, we, we really aren't too in danger of falling into that ditch. Although that is something definitely, I mean, the, the reason that these things have, have the, this kind of a, a reverse uh, push is because we do, we do have a tendency to become too systematic and almost dead in theology. Alex. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. So, so this, let, let me look at, yeah. So the dangers to us, uh, again, are that we share many of the same commitments. And so we are trying to do similar kinds of things. And so we can, we can fall into those problems. And one of those um, uh, is to um, restore the, the church, what God has meant the church to be. Uh, and that involves things like um, understanding what the Lord's Supper is, for instance, okay? Because the Lord's Supper um, has been viewed different ways. It could be viewed, a very low way of viewing the Lord's Supper is that it is a way, it's just kind of a reminder for us that Jesus died. So it's like a teaching, it's an object lesson. That's, that's a pretty low view of, of it. And well, you know, Jesus commanded it, so we should do it. So it's an act of obedience. Um, a very high view of it, which is a wrong view, would be one that this is the way that Jesus infuses grace to me. He gives me his body, and so when I eat it, that's, an, that's my daily infusion, you know, my weekly infusion, whatever it is, so that I keep getting more and more grace. That's not what we believe either. But rather, the way that, we, but there is actually real grace associated, and Jesus Christ really is present with us in the Lord's Supper, but that is also by faith. And that by faith means that can never be unattended by the word. So that means that the, it's the, actually the preaching of the word. Well, let me get into, in, into this before I talk through this. Here's, here's the problem. And I think this is a great way to look at this. Especially, let's just focus on this last sentence. The proponents of the whole Federal Vision program routinely seek a theological fix for problems that ought to be addressed pastorally. That, I think, is probably the key point um, they're, they're trying, they see problems and they try to address it in a theological bent, but actually all these problems need to be addressed in um, pastorally. So it's not that we need a new theology. We have the theology. There's a good, we have a good theology. Reformed theology is a good theology, but we have to be able to uh, practice it. 
And the way that we practice it is by, one of them is by the simplicity of worship, right? The simplicity of worship. That's one of the most important things that the Reformation brought out because we have a tendency, we all have a tendency to want something objective. Whenever we don't have assurance, if we can just have something that we can touch and taste and feel that I know God's going to give me grace through that, then it doesn't require faith. So it, it just takes a lot of the tension away. So if I can just make sure to go, what, and whatever it is, you know, making sure that you're ringing the bells at the right time, making sure that you have the right incense, making sure that you're taking communion in the right way, um, making sure that you partake of it, um, making sure that you're baptized in the right time, whatever it is, those things can all become idols because they are divorced from faith. But the simplicity of worship is that God has given us very simple means of grace, and they are. He bends down low to us so that we can touch and taste these things. But that doesn't take them away. That doesn't take away faith. Faith, and therefore, the primacy, the highest point, or the most important thing in worship, if I want to say most important, I hate to say that, but the preaching of the word is given a centrality. There's a centrality to it because it is by the preaching of the word that we respond. That is God's normal way, uh, his normal means of grace to us is that we encounter the word preached and then God changes our hearts and we respond to that. That's the normal way that it's done. And so it's not normally, it's, it, he doesn't accomplish it by giving us um, just the act itself, right? We don't believe sacramentalism means that the act itself is what imparts grace. Simply by doing it, we receive grace. And that's never the case. Yeah, Michael. <laughs> well, I would say, okay, so the question is, is this more of a, um, of a potential pitfall for, for pedo-baptists as opposed for, to Baptists? Uh, I would say yes in some ways, right? I think, I, I don't know that there, there, although I have been to churches, actually. In fact, I was at a church where pedo communion, frankly, was done, but not pedo baptism. But that had more, that was more of a, just a general lack of understanding of sacraments across the board. I think that usually the, the progression of this is you're not going to go from being an Arminian Baptist straight into being uh um, the federal vision. So yeah, there is an understanding. You first have to have a particular understanding of the covenant. But now that's what I want to do is to talk to Baptists. So if you're a Baptist here, um, you should still feel a form of temptation toward this because even if you're a Reformed Baptist you, and you don't believe that a child should be a member until that membership comes after a profession of faith, even if that's what you believe, you still should believe that God's promise is to your children. So your children are not random strangers who happen to be attending church, right? That's not the way that we view your children. So I don't go around to your children and encourage and exhort the ones that have been baptized, but leave the other ones to find God for themselves, right? That's not what we're doing. We believe that God's work is through generations because he has made a covenant with us and with our children. So even if you're a formed Baptist, you should, you should not be dispensational. You should be covenantal. 
Um, so what are these, what are the ways that we, um, the solutions to this? The, these are the kind of things that we're trying to do all the time and it's hard. It's to understand, tr to correctly understand the authority that God has given to the church. To correctly understand it. Not, to, not that um, he has given the church, he's given us a pope who has authority that's separate from him. Not that somehow we are part of a, uh, that the church is kind of an optional thing, but rather that God actually works by his ordination, by choosing men who will lead his church and that they have real authority and that they have real responsibility for the souls under their care. Some, uh, we already mentioned simplicity of worship. Perhaps the biggest thing is simply pastoral care, right? Pastoral care in dealing with individuals. We don't, what we don't want to do is solve all of your dilemmas by announcing an objective covenant. Hey, look, we've solved all your problems, objective covenant. But rather, it's by real pastoral care where we really are addressing the things that are difficult in your lives, really addressing your real doubts, assurance of uh, how we come to understand assurance of salvation, how we come to, how we deal with daily repentance. You know, trying to do a side dodge where we don't really have to worry about repentance and where, well, you were baptized, so look back to your baptism. That's like a real common phrase. Look back to your, ba if, you're, if you're unsure, look back to your baptism because then you know that you're saved, right? I mean, then, ju then just keep on living. That's, that's not what real Christianity is. What real Christianity is day by day, struggle of faith, repentance, it's seeing that we do fall short but not wallowing in that, but putting our faith in Christ and then the next day doing that same exact thing again. And then the next day doing that again, right? That, is, that takes pastoral care, not some overarching theology. It's a biblical understanding of God's work in our children. Um, justification by faith alone and the life of repentance. That justification is by faith alone, but that justification is never alone. We are being sanctified. In other words, the solution, application of Reformed theology. We already have it. We don't need something new, okay? So uh, we kind of have to wrap up now. So I'm sure that uh, you'll have even more questions than you came in with. But if you do have questions uh, regarding other topics as well, please make sure that you turn those in to us so that we can uh, address any questions you have. Um, any last parting words? Anything from any of the elders or pastors that I've uh, totally muffled? All right, then, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you very much that, you're, um, that you have given us um, your church, that your church always stands, and uh, that, that we are um, able to stand on the shoulders of men who have gone before us, who have uh, in earnestness sought you and are seeking godliness, uh, and, and have passed that down to us. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, allow us to do the same, that through uh, care for our children, that your kingdom would um, continue to advance. But we pray, Lord, knowing that it's only by your work uh, that we can't do anything to save anyone else, but it is that only by the work of your spirit applying the, the work of Christ in their hearts that, um, that any man will be saved. And so we pray, Lord, that you would please look kindly on us, uh, save our children, our neighbors, all the people around us, and that your kingdom would expand. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.